Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell story, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Welcome back to our 2021 Oscars coverage. As I mentioned last week, we're doing things a little differently this year. We are devoting entire individual episodes to three of our favorite awards, Best Sound, Best Cinematography, and Best Animated Feature. This week, we're focusing on the nominees in the Best Cinematography category. We have on the show for you today, Sean Bobbitt, the cinematographer of Judas and the Black Messiah, Eric Messerschmidt, the cinematographer of Mank, and Faden Papamichael, who shot The Trial of the Chicago Seven. As always, we invite all of the nominees to join us in conversation, but unfortunately, Darius Wolski, who shot News of the World, and Joshua James Richards, the cinematographer of Nomadland, are currently on location shooting new movies and they were unable to join us. There was some truly incredible camera work done this year, and I am delighted to speak with these true artists of the craft. Joining me today for this conversation is my colleague Stuart Bowling, who is the Director of Content and Creative Relations at Dolby, and he consults on the technical side of things with many of the top directors of photography. Uh, so I'm thrilled to have Stuart joining me for these conversations. So first up, Stuart and I sat with the nominee for Judas and the Black Messiah, cinematographer Sean Bobbitt, who joined us from London. All right, well, Sean Bobbitt, thanks for uh, coming and joining us on the Dolby Institute podcast. Uh, this is your first Academy Award nomination, isn't it? It is, yes. And thank you for inviting me. <laughs> Absolutely. First of all, congratulations. Um, what, a, what a great first, first nomination and a great film to get nominated for. I, I, I wish that you were going to get the full-on Dolby Theater Academy Awards night experience. But, you know, sad, sad to say we're all living in the COVID reality still, so we, we, we do the best that we can. Yeah. You know, I, I think my mom is going to be very upset that I don't get the whole thing. But, you know, I'll just have to try harder and get another one at some point or even get this one. That's it. I'd say that one of the things that has struck me in looking at your, your films again is your, you know, you tend to light in a very naturalistic way and use a lot of natural light sources and kind of hide hide light sources in natural in natural um, uh, kind of sources. So is that something that kind of was your eye trained by your experiences doing documentary films and news in that sense? Uh, absolutely, 100 percent. I mean, there, there are two great things that news and documentaries teach you as a cameraman. Well, actually, there are many things, but two primary things. Um, one is speed which everyone loves. Um, and the other is, um, you know, you, you are, you are trained to see light and available light and to assess it immediately and figure out how you can use it, how you can adjust it. You know, you just have been presented with so many different lighting situations all over the world that you, you develop this amazing recognition of light. And, and an understanding of color temperature, a really deep understanding of color temperature as well. So when it came time to actually move into the, into the world of drama, it was, it was, you know, it was like, okay, um, you know, this location is this, this, and this. The dramatic intent is this, this, and this. The time of day is this. Um, okay, well, let's, let's set up the lighting in a way that's going to capture that moment in time. 
and hold it long enough for us to shoot the whole scene. And so, yeah, I, I do light in a, a naturalistic way if the script calls for it. Right. You know, the, the thing of you know, being a cinematographer, I've always believed that you should be able to shoot in every possible genre. Um, and I've, you know, I've, I've, I've done that to greater or lesser success, um, everything except a musical, um, which, you know, it might happen one day. You never know. Um, keep it open. Musical. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I really. I'd, I'd, li I'd like to see a Steve McQueen musical for sure. Uh, you well might. <laughs> you heard it here. You heard it here <laughs> first. Folks. Yeah, but it, you know, and the documentary thing. You know, I traveled the world with um, initially with with three lights, three mini redheads, and with those things you have to do everything. By the end of the time I was doing documentaries, I was traveling with nine heads, and people hated me because of the baggage. And, you know, I was very fortunate. Most of the salmon I worked with were actually, some of them better lighters than I was. So that between us, we could quickly get together a very sophisticated lighting setup um, for interviews, which is, you know, is portraiture. So Shaka King is the, the director and, and worked on the script uh, for Judas and the, and the Black Messiah. Can you tell us a little bit about, more specifically about the, those conversations that you had with with Shaka at the beginning of the process? Did he have a specific look for the film that he wanted to go for? Were there influences that you guys talked about? Or how did you, how did you work with him to develop the, the signature visual style for this film? Well, I'd, I'd, I first met Shaka. I was, I was grading another film in New York, and, and we met for a quick cup, what was going to be a cup of tea, um, but what went on for a, a, an awful lot longer than that. Um, and um, immediately I was taken by, you know, by, by Shaka's general demeanor. You know, he's, he's a big lad and, and has a great humor to him, but he's also very focused, very eloquent. And it was obvious that he had done a lot of work on this film and he knew the story, he knew the history, and that this was a passion piece. This was something that was important. Um, and, and having read the script, you know, I absolutely understood this is an important story that for a lot of people, particularly white people, had been lost over history. Um, and, you know, it, it's a story that, a constant story that needs to be told. Um, and he had with him, you know, on his computer about over 300 stills photographs of Chicago from that time. And just going through those and through those, it was, you know, it, it was almost, to me, when you're looking at them, the black and white ones were astounding. And a little bit later in production, I, I did say to Shaka, look, we should shoot in black and white. And he just went, no. Yeah. So that was that. Um, but but the color that's that's such a switch. Usually the director's like, oh, I'd, I'd love to do this in black and white. But but it's interesting looking well, at the film. The use of color is so powerful in this film. Well, right? and and that's what we came to because the color photographs were, of course, all Kodachrome and Ektachrome, and just slightly faded. But they still had those deep, deep blacks, and mm. and that wonderful palette that sort of slightly pingy palette that is just slightly drifted off a bit on those primary colors. And, you know, we'd, it's, 
it's not a docudrama, it's not a documentary. It's a full-on drama, but we still wanted to create a sense, a very subtle sense of period. And so that's what we looked at initially, were, were those colors. And once you start seeing the locations as well, the locations tell you things, um, lots of unexpected things. And for example, you know, we're in Cleveland. Cleveland was, was sadly a, a, a great mix for, or a great match um, for Chicago in the 19, late 1960s, because it, it still hasn't recovered. Um, from the late 1960s. And, and there was a, a, a green color that kind of kept it reappearing, and particularly in the um, upstairs in the classroom and in the hallways of the Black Panther headquarters, which, you know, we, we very quickly embraced. It just felt that was the color of that era. Um, and we kept finding it all over Cleveland. So that, that kind of became a natural base um, for the colors. And, you know, looking at all that Kodachrome stuff as well, particularly the, the nighttime exterior stuff from the area, era, you, you get all these mixed color temperatures. And that's something that has always, you know, interested me. And it's You're a, talking about from, from street lamps? From street lamps, from street fronts. Light coming from windows. Cars coming in, lights, windows, you know, all of these things. In those days, the there was sort of the color temperatures were, were all over the place. And, and as a result, you get these fantastic nighttime palettes. And so that was something else that we were really um, sort of keyed into and wanted to work with. But also, you know, that mix of color temperature gives you a fantastic ability to create depth in the image through the use of color. Um, and that's something that always fascinates me and always interests me. And that, you know, goes directly back to news and documentary days where you're working in, in a real place, which has these amazing color kind of mixes. And so it's always something that I've, I've embraced and, and, and tried to work with and recreate. Yeah, I love the scene where they uh, pull up to the bar at night and you have that, uh, the neon of the bar uh, sign reflecting in the car window. Yeah, that's that's actually CG. Okay, that's, that's what yeah. I, thought. I, I, I wish I was that clever. I think I think you're talking about. I think you're talking about this. You may be talking about one of my favorite shots, which is uh, when Bill picks up uh, Fred for the first time in the car, and you know the car is it, the, the the camera's clearly on a car mount. It's a long shot. You know, Bill turns the car around, pulls up, and then and then at some point, you did a really tricky handoff to a handheld camera to a, to a camera operator as the car pulls off and away out of frame. It was just such a delightful, fun, like whimsical kind of shot. Well, it was that was something that Shaka had mentioned very early on. Could we could we make it so that the camera stays behind and then pans with the car? And we spent months trying to figure out how to do that and thinking you how know, to hide, how to hide that transition. Well, not yet. And, and also, you know, we were looking at, at using um, electromagnets so that we could actually stick a, a steady cam underneath it and with an electromagnet mount it and pull it away. So it was seamless. And um, we looked at oh, all these different ideas, mechanical and electrical and this and the other. And in the end, um, we just used a, um, you know, what's uh, uh, call it? A, a, a fast mount thing that there's just a little clip on the side you unclip it and what what i did because I, I operate as well 
was that, you know, I was standing in the middle of the road with a grip and a camera assistant. So as the car pulls up, we just walk up to it. I grab the top of the camera. As the, the Panthers get into the car, it shakes. It shakes, right, yeah. And as it shakes, we clipped it and just lifted it slightly. And then as the car d- drove away, I just let it go and then pans. And I have to say, that is my favorite shot of the whole film. It really, and, I, and it amazes, well, it's actually, it's very gratifying, a number of people who've noticed it. Well, gratifying and annoying, because in one way, I, you know, you want these things to be unnoticeable, so that, that people, it's a subconscious thing that goes on, and they're like, oh, what? But n- not a big enough what to throw them out of the film. You, could, you chose the uh, Arri Alexa large format. Yeah. Um, so and then the mini, the mini LF as well, right? Yeah. No, really a, a very conscious decision as well. Uh, one thing that, that was absolutely crucial was that we get a true and accurate color edition on everyone's face. And the, the, the LF, you know, you've just got more picture information there because you've just got more chips. Um, and when you, we, we come into a grade, you just have more stuff to play with in terms of color grading. And it, it really, you know, it's, it's also, I'd, I'd worked with the LF on, on a previous film and, and loved it because of the shadow, the drop-off. You know, you compare it to a normal Alexa and you will never work with a normal Alexa again because the LF has a, a truly photographic grayscale of drop-off. And it's really just wonderful on faces. Did you guys have to add any film grain? Uh, we did, yes. Okay. A really subtle film grain to it, um, which we hope is, is sort of unnoticeable. A lot of people think we did shoot it on film. It does um, look very filmic. Yeah. Well, and, and a lot of that is, um, is Tom Poole. Tom Poole's the colorist I work out with and have worked with for for. You know, twelve years or more, maybe even, um, and you know, he he comes from a film background, and he has his special his special sauce we call it, um, which comes in many many different flavors, and it he creates a very filmic look, which is what we wanted that ectochrome, you know, kodachrome feel. You need a touch of grain in there. You need that contrast, and so. You know that's that's what he created, and and I think you know it's, it's a stunning look. There's so much contrast in the movie, though, like in all of the shots, like like in the the bar at night where they're playing pool, uh, the halation of light coming down, that kind of smoky '60s atmosphere was just all beautifully captured. That's actually a great transition because one of the clips um, that the studio gave us to talk about is that um, imagine what we could accomplish together. This is uh, this is this is Fred Hampton uh, going into into the bar uh, to meet with the um, uh, some of the guys from the Crowns to propose that they that they work together. This is Crowns territory. We don't want no trouble, brother. We just passing through. Crowns protected Martin Luther King when he was here in 1966. And he got his head split open. Damn near killed by a mob of crackers throwing Irish confetti. Bang up job, y'all. Hey, 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 hey. Back up! Whoa, whoa, whoa. No need for that, brother. 
We on our way. But dig, I got a message for the big man. Tell him the Panthers want to sit down with the crown. Imagine what we could accomplish again. The location itself was, was just so right. Uh, I mean, when we first looked at it, it did need a lot of work from the art department. But the way it was set out geographically worked very well with the, with the, the, the story points that we needed to hit. Um, so it was, it was a very exciting place. I spent a lot of time in there just looking at it. And, and part of my process is that I'll go to, if it's a real location, I'll, I'll go there as often as I can and spend as much time there as I can and just take digital stills from every angle and take those back and then I put them into Lightroom and I give them a grade. And I do different grades for different things so that when I sit down with, with Shocker uh, and we're talking shots, I can then pull these images up of the location itself. So you've got a really good idea of, of the geography and what might happen or you might wish to happen in that location. And at the same time, they'd have a like grade on it. So it'd be, we could start to open the discussions about the overall look of the film. You know, yes, we like this. No, we don't like that. Maybe a bit more of this, maybe a bit more of that. So it, it's, it's all part of um, that creation of the look and, you know, breaking the scenes down into into shots another one of the the clip clips that the uh, that warner brothers was kind enough to send over to us was the you can't murder freedom um scene this is this is um fred hampton's kind of big speech uh i, I am a revolutionary at the church which is just a, visually it's such an arresting sequence and and um i think there's a lot for us to dig into and discuss so let's take a look at this clip You can't murder liberation. You can murder revolutionary, but you can't murder revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. This is such a crucial scene. There is so much going on, and it, and it really is kind of the, the dramatic center of the film. And after this thing, you know, this scene, things are going to change. So it was really important to get it right. And, the, you know, and so Shaka and I spent a lot of time talking about this scene and breaking it down and, and you know, figuring out, you know, what the most important moments are. And, and how to go about doing it. And it, the, the other, I mean, huge issue we had was that we had only one day on that location. So, you know, to shoot a scene of that scale, you know, and I have to say a, a remarkable feat on everyone's part, but specifically the, um, you know, the, the first AD, uh, Benita Allen, I mean, it, it's just, the most amazing scheduling to get a crowd of that size ready to go and, and to keep it moving and to, to, to get that whole thing shot. Because most of it is single camera. The whole of that film is primarily single camera. 
we had two cameras in that day um, just because there was no other way to do it. So, you know, but and also for us to be able to move from from shot to shot quickly enough that we couldn't afford to stick a whole bunch of lighting instruments into the set itself. So it, it is lit primarily from the outside. And we have every lighting instrument for about the three or four surrounding states um, and every crane and, you know, everything. You know, Cleveland has no, no resources at all. So, you know, for Jeremy Long, my gaffer, to light that was a real feat. Um, and then on the inside, we, we, we worked with different size LED panels to give us that bit of molding light um, for the close-ups and things. But, you know, you, you, if we had tried to put lights and stands in there, we would never finish the day. So, Sean, thank you so much. Uh, this is a remarkable film. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a story that I think very few people know about. I'm really grateful uh, to Shaka King and to you and the rest of the team for telling this story. Uh, and congratulations on your, your first Academy Award nomination. May there be many, many more. Uh, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Next up, we have the nominee for his work on Mank, Director of Photography Eric Messerschmidt, who joined us for a Dolby Institute webinar recently, which our colleague Tom Graham moderated. Thank you, Tom, for sharing this video with us so that we can share it with you. It was a, such a fantastic movie. And, you know, we, um, we met up and did a, a panel at IBC a few years ago when actually people could meet together. And um, it was on uh, the second season of Mindhunter. And uh, the same group uh, did that. And now you've, you've, you've moved on and you've created this amazing picture, Mank, that is such a different um, style. And, and I have to say, all of us involved in the world of Dolby Vision have been pining and dreaming of a black and white movie in high dynamic range. And so um, this absolutely delivers on every front. And... I have to say, I'm, I was super excited, Eric, to, to see your, your card in the front with the high dynamic range label. Can you tell us about that? It was a total surprise. I, 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 I think I remember texting with Eric White, like, um, God, months ago now. And, and uh, you know, it was always like, oh, have you gotten the most recent, you know, he, he would send us revisions. You know, we, he was grading it remotely or, well, not for him, but for us. And we would get um we would get re revisions uh and but it was never the whole movie you know it was like scenes or sections or pieces or um and and he said oh have you uh, have you seen your title card yet have you seen the titles yet have you seen the titles yet and i said no i haven't seen the titles yet and then i saw it and i was like oh cool so that i didn't know anything about that that was something that um i guess i don't know peter you and you and fincher worked up or i don't know where that came from actually you know obviously you guys have been shooting digital for quite a long time. You're big fans of red cameras. And so how did you um, decide to go uh, with the special sensor and, and sort of remove color from, from the sensor itself? Well, initially, I, the three of us talked about it. And I mean, initially I was, I, I had suspected that, uh, that maybe co the color camera would work to our advantage so that Eric would have 
the color information to work with in the grade, you know? And, and I think both of us were a little bit apprehensive, actually. I don't want to speak for Eric, but, but at least I was like, boy, that could really come in handy, you know? Um, and, and so Eric, Peter, and I, and David talked about it, and, and we decided that we would shoot a test, and we would compare the color camera against the black and white camera. Um, and we, it wasn't really about nostalgia at all. It was strictly, it was like just about empirical testing. And um, we compared the two sensors. Well, we actually shot a, a, several color sensors, and we shot the black and white sensor. And I, I think we were, we were in the theater for all of like 18 seconds before we all unanimously agreed that there was no chance we were going to shoot color. It was like, and it just, I don't know, for me anyway, it had so much more tonal depth and, and, um, and range, uh, and, um, it had this kind of silvery, um, tactile quality to it that the desaturated color sensor just didn't have. It looked thin and it didn't have the same bite and it didn't have, and it, we needed speed because we were doing some deep focus work with a, you know, with the lenses quite closed down and, um, and it was, it, it didn't even, it wasn't even apparent to us initially. I mean, all our initial tests were all about, you know, kind of the quality of the image. And then as it turned out, the black and white camera, we felt like we could really comfortably rate at, at 3,200 ASA, which of course was really beneficial for us in terms of the deep focus. And, um, you know, certainly from a standpoint. And so by deep focus, you mean like in the San Simeon, uh, dinner, or party where everybody's sitting there, right? Yeah, I mean, actually, almost the entire film was shot between a T8 and T11. So, I mean, the lens is nearly closed. Uh, so it's, um, uh, you know, uh, even at 800 ASA, it would have required substantial amounts of light. And, um, you know, the, the monochrome camera was really clean at like 1600 ASA. And we looked at it and we said, God, we can we can push this further. And, um, and we looked at it at 3200 ASA. And it had just a little bit of of um, digital noise in it, which looked quite a bit like film grain, which then Eric was able to enhance. So um, yeah, that's, that's where we landed. And I found that I, as a result, I was using a lot less fill light. Like we were, you know, we I could really comfortably expose far to the right. And I, I, when, I, when I found I was monitoring an SDR, I was closing down early in the exposure curve. I was pro over protecting the highlights and I was using more fill on the set. And then we would get into the HDR grade and, and Eric would have to sort of re-equalize the curve. And it turned out I didn't need the fill and I didn't need to protect the highlights. And I was like, you know, I didn't find that I, I was that worried about the toe in general. I was always looking at the highlights, um, particularly in contrasty situations. So the way that we had the, the LUTs built, um, especially in the black and white version was, um, when, when the monitor clipped, the waveform clipped, and the sensor, the, the camera told us we were clipped. So I, I knew empirically that if there wasn't detail on the monitor, there wasn't detail on the sensor, which was um, incredibly empowering as a DP. You know, I really understood where the exposure curve was, and, and, and I could work quite comfortably in the, in the, in the midtones and, um, uh, and, and in the shadows, knowing that I had all that room up top. And uh, so it... Um, and, you know, it's, it's true. I mean, I think as, as much as we want to romanticize the light meter and, and romanticize the, the mysticism of it, um, we all work off the monitor, and David Fincher definitely does, and the confidence it brings him to look at the monitor and feel like it's, it's extremely close to the, the image that uh, he's going to see when Eric pulls it up in the suite, um, I think is really 
is really important, has, has become very important for our process, you know. There are beautiful, incredible shots that are pieces of art in the camera work and the there's no shaky cam in the vocabulary, right? It's it's everything is perfectly crafted. And so talk a little bit about the the lens flare look and how that was purposeful. We had done a, a, a really extensive series of lens tests. I, I had done um, I, I, I projected um, projected when when you say projected, you, you know, you take the lenses and you put the lenses on a projector and it projects a focus screen up and you can you can evaluate resolution and distortion, barrel distortion, and chromatic aberration, and spherical aberration. And I went to Panavision, I went to Kessel Camera, and I evaluated two dozen different sets of lenses. Um, and mostly what we were looking for was sharpness. And, um, and sharpness at very deep f-stops. And uh, turns out, to no surprise, the most modern lenses are, in fact, the sharpest. Um, but, you know, modern lenses also, um, unfortunately, don't flare particularly well. In fact, it's very difficult to get them to flare. And it's very difficult to get them to flare in, in the style of the sort of simple lenses of the 1940s. Uh, you know, m modern lenses have multiple groups of optics that are that are managing things like aberration and um, and and uh, astigmatism and stuff. And, you know, the, the lenses of the 1940s have just three or four pieces of glass, and so they have lots of flare characteristics that modern lenses do not have. And um, we had were quite interested in the in these sort of halation flares that lenses of the period um, produce, and and even. E even vintage lenses, lenses from the 50s and 60s that we use now, you know, uh, to, to achieve certain effects, don't don't give those effects. So we had pulled a series of references and I sent some to Peter and Eric and to David and then David had some ideas. And um, and and so all, all the lenses have been art directed um, uh, by Peter's team uh, uh, after the fact, which has been one of the joys of, of my uh, time on the movie was uh, like getting those and seeing, oh, like maybe that could be a little bit bigger and talking to Fincher about it. And like, what if this just it a little bit more and let's go bigger here. And um, yeah, that, that was really fun, but it's all, I mean, it's, it's all trickery. It's none of that is actually, actually uh, was actually captured that way, which is kind of the way we like it. There's a shot in the movie where the um, it's the Irving Thalberg funeral and and that that set was one where we wanted these shaft these dramatic shafts of light coming in and we had to for a variety of reasons we had to shoot it from the side of the room where there were no in fact no windows um so we shot it and we put some theatrical lights up in the frame and filled the room with smoke and projected shafts of light through the smoke and then added the windows later one of my you know uh, amazing scenes that i really think froze back to that era, right, is the idea of shooting the day for night stuff outside in the gardens of San Simeon. So maybe you guys could could walk us through how fun that was to do. It was, you know, I had, I was in, um, I was shooting in Africa. I was doing this TV show called Raised by Wolves. And um, we were doing all our night work day for night. And Whenever I'm not shooting with Fincher, I send him stills of what I'm doing. <laughs> and I was like, hey, look at this, look at this, look what we're doing here. Um, and we were we were chatting about this day for night work. And he said, oh, that's interesting. That's beautiful. That's kind of cool. And, and then when Mank came up, 
he was scouting and he was looking at the locations and um, the locations they had found that he liked were, were Huntington Gardens in Pasadena, California and the backyard of a, of a mansion in San Marino. Um, and both of which were perfect uh, for what he wanted to do in terms of the, you know, the digital animals and the amount of real estate we had to cover and, and, and the scope that, the, uh, that he wanted the audience to appreciate. But they were also incredibly logistically challenging to light. Uh, we didn't really have access. We had we were um, we were shooting sort of at the tail end of the summer, where we you know we would have wanted a slightly longer night if we were going to shoot at night for night. It would have been very expensive. Um, and he said, "Well, God, what if we just did it day for night, like you know, like those like you did?" And and I was like, "Okay, that's that's an interesting idea." And of course, that's exactly what they would have done in 1940 um, in that scenario. Um, and so we, we went back and we looked at it with respect to this. You know, we had been scouting it as if we were lighting it initially. And, of course, that uh, by the time we made that decision, um, you know, we then had to take into account the position of the sun. Um, we looked at the position of the sun and we knew we had to, you know, because we wanted it either backlit or sidelit. So we knew we had to get this shot at this time of the day and this shot at this time of the day. And, um, and then we did a whole series of tests. And, you know, in... In the early days of film, what one, what one would have done is is under you know underexpose the 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 film, um, and uh, with the help of some filtration, uh, and and add artificial fill. And um, I knew from my experience, um, both with Fincher but also on on the series on the TV series that there was no added value of underexposing the camera. That, that actually what we should do is build a lot, uh, a viewing lot. Um, so, uh, which basically is just helping me judge fill values, um, knowing that, that there is plenty of detail in there for Eric to work with so he can, he can dodge areas of foliage and he can push down foreground and, you know, um, fully aware that th those things um, we would have to do in order for it to be believable. Uh, so what we're getting is a really thick, rich negative um, with, I mean, if you were to look at it, ungraded it would look crazy because it was super bright and there was lots of artificial fill on the actors way more than you would if you were doing a, a, a traditional day exterior but then when it's all brought down through the help of the viewing lot that we built um, and we actually built a couple versions we built sort of a soft softer curve for for overcast viewing and then we built sort of a steeper curve for for sunny sunny viewing um, we would we would bring in that fill light and it would approximate the you know roughly the gamma that we thought Eric would be working with in the grade and then and then he was able to work with it from there. I can't thank you guys enough, everybody. If you haven't seen uh, Mank and Dolby Vision, check it out. As uh, Eric Messerschmidt said, um, best viewed probably on an LG type OLED display. And um, again, thank you guys. You're absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Eric, for taking the time to speak with us. We're going to wrap up today with our final nominee in the Best Cinematography category, Faden Papa Michael, the Director of Photography for The Trial of the Chicago 7. Faden happened to be quarantining at home in Greece when we reached out, lucky for us and for you, since Faden is a really fun and delightful interview. All right, we're talking today with Faden Papa Michael. Faden, thank you so much. You're you're joining us from Greece, where you're on COVID lockdown, unfortunately. So uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about the uh, 
the trial of the Chicago Seven. I think this is my understanding. This is your second Academy Award nomination, right? Um, this is uh, you were originally first nominated for Alexander Payne's movie Nebraska. That's right. So this is the second one. Uh, I did. It's my fifth AC one, which I'm very happy about. Uh, and my yeah, no, 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 no BAFTA this year, but Ford versus Ferrari got BAFTA last year and AC. And so this this was actually, I mean, I know people say that all the time, like, oh, it was a big. This was truly a, a surprise. I didn't expect it. Um, I must say, I expected it more last year. <laughs> Well, Faden, I'm 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 curious. I mean, when you first, you know, you so you first got the script for Chicago Seven. You're going to meet with Aaron Sorkin about it. I'm sure you read the script. You you must have thought like, my God, half of this movie takes place in a courtroom. I did. Was that exciting? Was that exciting no, to you? Exciting. Was it daunting? Like, <laughs> it's not exciting. I talked to Oliver Stapleton once, and he goes, "I get a script, and I like kind of go through it, and if it's all dialogue, I pass." <laughs> right um i must say i mean i did i did read it of course uh i did read molly's game also it was 200 pages i hate reading scripts uh it was a great read molly's game was a great read and this one was it's a fun movie yeah i mean he definitely has something with the rhythm so i felt like we can do something it's not going to be a stagnant courtroom drama um, you know, he's a smart guy. He definitely relies on the cinematographer and the editor, I would say almost completely to get the movie done. Uh, so in terms of, you know, the Academy Award nomination, I mean, the amount of work we do is, is, you know, goes in a way beyond the traditional role of a cinematographer. Uh, Aaron is the first one who'll tell you the same thing, but uh, you know he has he has very specific things. It's all triggered based on 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 beats in the scre screenplay. But in terms of how you're going to cover the movie and what shots you're going to get, that that's up to you. You know, so all that, and then of course we did have all these opportunities of leaving the courtroom, going outside, covering the riots, which. Again, we had very limited means, uh, but we did shoot in Chicago, the actual location. There was the Haskell-Wexler footage that gave us, I, I actually didn't, at the time, we didn't know we we're going to be integrating that into the film, but we did watch it, of course, because it was a direct guide and reference to the amount of tear gas and the amount of uh, violence. Um, uh, but you know, it was a sunny. So Faden, you're, you're talking, you're talking about, uh, this is Haskell Wexler's movie, medium cool. uh, medium cool from, which was, so he shot it in an, like in the riot. No, no, he actually was, he was, uh, actually in the actual event with his 60 millimeter color camera, uh, um, and, uh, you know, he built a narrative a uh, fictional story and a character, but used the actual events to construct it, his fictional story within that frame, which was, you know, interesting. And I think maybe the first time that was actually done where you're, right. you know, mixing sort of a, a fictional narrative character and, and, and actually also capturing all this um, uh, original footage. Uh, you know, we are recreating this event and using his footage <laughs> <laughs> to, 
to to um, spurs and and to intersperse with our our footage. Um, not trying to use it and and blend it, but just kind of interconnected. We actually made it black and white. It was originally a shot in color, uh, Haskell stuff. But um, uh, yeah, but you know, there's very different energy going away uh, when we leave the courtroom. Um, um, uh, again, multiple cameras. I literally told my camera operators. Alan Pierce and Michael Fuchs to pretend to be Haskell Wexler, get in a crowd and just make a documentary. And, and, you know, so, I mean, it was, but it was fun. And, I mean, Aaron's scripts are fun. I mean, uh, he, like I said, he's not very technical. It's only his second movie. He's, he's, but he's, you know, he's a filmmaker. I mean, he's, you know, he understands cinema. Uh, uh, but you know, he, he won't, he won't tell you, he's not like mangled. He's not going to say like, you know, boom, the camera down a little bit and okay, like start the little pushing now. And like, you know, he's not that specific, but he knows what he wants and he knows, and he also knows what he don't, doesn't want and what it doesn't need and all that. So. Well, so how did those days go in the courtroom? Like, did you storyboard or was there a no, shot list or would you I mean, of- I don't like, no, I mean, literally it'd be. Bring in the cast, read the scene, and then I'd I'd call the script supervisor over and I'd dictate her a shot list. I go, we're gonna do three cameras here, then we're gonna move three cameras. I had three cameras here. It's like it's uh, three cameras are here, had floorboard, then they're gonna move in, then we're gonna do this, then we're gonna turn around. And then I also had to block shoot scenes because I had to do three, four scenes in one direction because I didn't have a crowd in the courtroom. You know, the courtroom by Shane Valentino was beautifully designed, built in an old church, um, but it ended up big and bigger than, you know, we really were budgeted to fill. (laughs) You know, we built a set that, like, we really couldn't fill with our budget, with extras. And we really also didn't have, we didn't have VFX money to, you know, same in, same in the Grand Park in Chicago, you know, we did get to shoot at the actual location, which was fantastic. And, you know, when they say take the hill and you've got pointing to the hill with grand statues on top, I mean, that can intercut directly with Haskell Wexler stuff. But, but you know, we had like 150 people and they, they were like 10,000 people in the park. Well, our our friends at Netflix were there. They were gracious enough to give us a couple of clips oh, okay. uh, to talk about. So. Yeah, so we do have a, this is this is a, a scene that happens pretty late in the film, um, and and uh, so this is they're doing the kind of the the mock cross examination of Tom Hayden. This is when they bring the tape recorder sure. out and his big you know when we find out that he's had this speech. If the blood is going to flow, let it flow all over the city. And one of the things I love about this sequence is there's a lot of intercutting. You know, you, then you. you all the things that you're talking about, all the non-courtroom stuff, you've got the flashbacks to the night, and then you've also got Abby Hoffman kind of narrating this from the stand-up stage oh, right, of, the, right. of the club. Hey, Jesus, what the hell is wrong with Rennie was just trying to get the police off of the kid. Get the police off of the kid? Yes. How? <laughs> he was grabbing them? Get off of him! Hey, get the- I'd like to say to the cops back there that we, we're allowed to be here. We have permits for this. And out of nowhere... <laughs> It was six armed police officers versus Rennie Davis and a pocket protector, so I can understand that response. How about your response? Let's press play. Rennie's getting back there! The whole world is watching! 
just beaten Rennie, Dave. Listen to me. We can still get everyone out of here safely. No, we can't. But, you know, when you're cutting away to these clips, you also have to understand, like I said, the rhythm of the, the screenwriting, which is like you're going away to these images sometimes for like five seconds and three seconds. So you right. you have to design these shots so they can function in that way. Um, it's no point in designing some elegant crane move or dolly move. Like this is, you know, cutting to Abby in the club going, you know, and then the cops, you know, uh, beat up this, you know, and then like you're cutting to it and it's like five, three, five seconds, boom, you're back to Tom Hayden, like in his mock interrogation. And he's like, yeah, I mean, you know, I did say that, but you have to be aware of the writing very much so as a cinematographer. Um, and I think that's that's the biggest challenge. You know, it's not necessarily what is a great shot, what is a beautiful dolly or camera move, or what is a cinematic wide shot. Like, these things won't play in Aaron's script. You know, so you have to be conscious of that and you have to, you know, accommodate like that particular style of storytelling with the photography and that, you know, that's, it's great. It's great. It takes, you know, it takes somebody experience because that's not always what we do as cinematographers. We always want to have beautiful images, you know, but it's often, it's like we got to, you know, make the writing work. And then Aaron is aware of certain images, but... You know, I'm still trying to give them more than he can express to me uh, because I know he's going to, you know, especially in the courtroom, I know he's going to need a reaction shot of the jury. I know he's going to need a reaction shot of the Black Panthers or the press. I know he's going to need reaction shot of the other defendants when somebody's on the stand. And, you know, he doesn't necessarily think about that because that's, it doesn't say on page cut to a reaction shot, uh, but I know, you know, and I just know, like, he's going to need it. So often I would, he'd be like, good, we're done, right? I'm like, not really. I mean, we should really get this and this and this, but I also don't want to be telling him, like, we, you know, we also all want to go home and, you know, like, now we really need to get this. And then I've also talked to Alan, the editor, and he's like, please make sure we get some extra stuff. And, you know, he also cut Molly's game. So he, you know, it's, 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 you find yourself, you know, I mean, I want to serve a director, but I also, I know in the end, he's going to be appreciative of all these other things I'm getting. But I also don't want to give him stuff that for, for sure he's not going to need, you know, which, I mean, since I direct also, and since I've been in the editing room and, you know, like the first movie I directed and actually Wally Pfister shot, I mean, I would cover seven page scenes and two shots and I learned my lesson, you know, and I've learned it from working with Matt. <laughs> you learned your, you mean you, you mean you learned your lesson when you, when you got in the cutting room and you had no, you didn't, you had nowhere to go. Yep. So we do have one more scene from Netflix that they gave us to talk about. And this is, uh, I think this is the very end of the movie. This is, um, the, I think the sentencing hearing, um, Tom Hayden is, is admonished by the judge to keep his remarks brief and non-political. And he stands up and reads out all the names of the dead, which is a very, very powerful moment. And then you have that great shot where you pull back, you know, 
through the courtroom and see everybody responding to it. And it, that, that, I think that's the end of the film. Yeah, that's the last um, shot. It's actually a single shot. I want to briefly talk about that because, you know, one thing Aaron said throughout pre-production, it's like, you know, we really come up, we need to come up with something for the last shot. And uh, he did, had a few specific shots that he actually kept bringing up during production. Like one was when they throw the Molotov at the recruitment center like that. You can't read recruitment center until the Molotov cocktail hits it and lights it up. One was the glass bottle being thrown in front of the um, National Guard, like when they're trying to cross the bridges. And then one was the end shot. He kept saying like the end shot, the end shot. You know, so I was trying to come up with like a last image. And then we came up with a shot that starts on, uh, you know, the DA's office, uh, Joseph Vernon standing up and uh, his partner saying, what are you doing? He's like, I'm paying respect to the fallen. And he leaves and that follows him out. And we rotate back around past the sketch artist onto our defendants and we pull back in court and it looks like a, you know, like a big tecton crane pullback. But of course this was a practical location in New Jersey and I couldn't get a tecton crane. I could never do a shot like that. Uh, so I built this wooden ramp that people were hiding with their bodies. And then we did this on Steadicam and then the Steadicam, you know, rotates around and then starts walking backwards up this wooden ramp uh, that we had built in the courtroom uh, and all the way almost to the ceiling and it looks like this big pullback crane shot. But it's really kind of low tech. Right. And, uh, you know, I was, I was quite proud of, uh, like, figuring that out and how to do that. And then Michael Fuchs, the Steadicam operator, is, uh, you know, very, uh, very precise and very good and... Um, you know, I usually work with Scott Sakamoto, who obviously did The Revenant and all these. And I'm like, I'm like, you gotta, you know, you gotta do it like Scott Sakamoto. And he's like, he was great. You know, he, he, um, uh, he's definitely one of the new, very excellent tech cam operators. So, um, lots of respect to him for, yeah, not just that shot, but like throughout, you know, because. I really have high standards when it comes to state cam operating. And I always tell them, I, I want it to look like a dolly. Right. And it's hard in the anamorphic, expanded anamorphic formats. So. Why was it important to you to shoot this movie in, in the anamorphic format? Well, because again, similar to Ford vs. Ferrari, it's, it's always, you know, it's a lot of people um, interacting and I think it's a good format, you know, it's, I mean, very different than Ford vs. Ferrari, but it's basically a group of men who are trying to accomplish something. Um, and it, it calls for a lot of group shots and raking reaction shots and stuff. And it just lends itself to it. And I do like, I do like, um, you know, the, the, the large format uh, fall off. Uh, but I do like, I always like the aspect ratio. I love the older glass, the C-series. And um, in this case, it actually was more T-series, uh, expanded anamorphics than Dan Zazaki. Uh, you know, we started on Ford vs. Ferrari. It's become quite popular since, I think. I mean, I think they've expanded over 60% of their lenses. And 
and um, uh, you know, so but like we were really kind of dealing with prototypes on Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, this time we came out of New York, and you know, I found there was a bigger selection of lenses, and and I'm, a, I'm about to use kind of the same the same formula on Indiana Jones. So um, you know, trying to gather those. When the voters get to the cinematography category, what do you what do you hope that they're taking away and looking for in Chicago Seven? Well, I, I mean, I do think, you know, it's it's very hard to uh, separate uh, the crafts from, you know, very powerful film. I mean, we always profit from the film being good. I mean, I've done very beautiful films that have uh, beautifully photographed films that haven't been received or just are not that good. I mean, I think one of my most beautiful movies is Million Dollar Hotel, but it didn't really find an audience except in Poland. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, they loved it at Camera Image. Um, but, uh, you know, you kind of have to get lucky. You know, you got to have to get, get like, do your best work on, a, on a, a good movie. You know, you get lucky when it's a really good movie and it also looks really good. And, and then, you know, you never, I always say, I don't want people coming up to me after screening and going, look great, man, a really beautiful movie. That's a, not a good sign. <laughs> you know, you want them coming and go, that was a great movie, man. I love, like, sideways, they come up to me, like, like no one will come and say that's a great-looking movie. because It's not, but it's a really appropriately shot movie, and the movie is really good, and it's standing the test of time. And I watch it now, and I go... I was kind of down on it. I remember Vilmos Sigmund said to me, no, Fedon, it's like, it's great. It's perfectly shot. And I go, I don't know. It just it looks so, not so, you know. But now I watch it and it's like, I think it's actually, it's like, it's it's just perfectly shot. So I guess Chicago 7, it's, you know, the overall, what it triggers in people, you know, it's it has to be in harmony. Everything has to be in harmony. And it's very hard to get everything in harmony. I mean, we always try, of course, but, you know, the performance, uh, you know, so ultimately I think the test of time and what people remember, I do think people will remember Ford vs. Ferrari uh, just because it's a really good movie. Absolutely. No one's going to remember that it get nominated for cinematography or not. Like, who, who knows? And in a way, who cares? You know, so... Well, Faden, I know it's uh, it's getting late in Greece. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, congratulations on the Academy Award nomination for The Trial of the Chicago 7. It is streaming right now on Netflix in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. So please go uh, enjoy this uh, uh, amazing movie. Faden, that, that was a really fun conversation. It was really great Thanks. talking to you today. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, guys. It was, was fun. Thank you for making it different. And uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. I'd like to thank once again the nominees who are able to join us today and to congratulate all of the nominees for their incredible work in the Best Cinematography category this year. And thank you to our friends at Warner Brothers and Netflix for helping us pull these conversations together and providing clips so quickly during the very busy awards season. I hope these conversations inspire you to check out all of the nominated films, and we have links to all five in our show notes. If you enjoyed this series, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes or on the Apple Podcasts app. It really helps raise awareness for the series and helps us continue to grow. 
And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our new dedicated podcast feed, which you can find via the link in our show notes or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Dolby. You won't want to miss our next episode, where we'll be interviewing the nominees for the Best Animated Feature category. This is a really fun episode with a lot of soul and wolves and a few magic elves, a voyage to the moon, oh, and sheep, naturally. Until then, thank you for joining us. This has been the Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. The producer and editor of the show is Michael Coleman. Executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry. Production support is by Taylor Hines, and our production coordinator is Tristan Enriquez. Thank you for listening.